Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, their spin-offs and adaptations. And today we're going to explore the big screen version of the 1968 novel Fuzz. Joining me to talk about the film is a man who has dedicated himself to exploring some of cinema's great screen icons, namely all of the James Bonds, and lately, Michael Caine, in his own podcast, Pod. It is John Rain. Greetings, Paul. How nice of you to join me, John. How nice of you to have me. Well, we need an expert on the sort of particular type of icon that Burt Reynolds is. Oh, you come to the right place. But in terms of your stuff, you just completed Pod 2? Uh, Pod 2's just finished, yes. Yeah, yes. so that was the Kane scrutiny. The cane scrutiny finished because I got a bit bored, if I'm honest. You didn't do the Ipcrest file, did you? No, it was all lined up to do, but I, time got the better of me. Christmas got in the way, and I just thought, oh, fuck this. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I did a swear. You probably can't swear. I can. You can. Oh, right. We can. Fanny. Okay, that's one for our American listeners there. They don't. That's not a swear to them. Oh, yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, iTunes to put a little e beside it. I think we have to. But yeah, I liked I liked the Kane scrutiny. I was a bit sad you didn't do the Ipcrest the Ipcrest file because, but it's such a good film that maybe it's not worth the scrutiny. Yeah, no, I was sad about it too. I wanted to do more. I just ran out of time and then patience, and then I just had a better idea to do for the next series, and then I just started getting ready for that. So, what's the podcast project situation nowadays? What's coming up for you then? Well, next coming up for me is a brand new series called uh, All Rather Mysterious. Excellent. Uh, which you, you probably, it was probably out by the time this comes out, I'd imagine. But um, it's a it's just a show where there's three of us. There's me, uh, Eleanor Morton, a comedian, and David Reed, a comedian. And we sit around and we each bring three mysteries to the table and discuss them and then decide what happened. So you're, you're going to sort out all these conspiracy theories, put everything to bed. All about the closure, yes. Excellent stuff. Well, we'll link to that in the various show notes and tweets to do with this as well and everyone can go back and listen over smirsh pod since its inception through the yeah. bonds and the canes and all the side pods of which one of the side pods was cannonball run yes so that was your first touching on burt reynolds that's well as it were yes indeed the late burt reynolds which is hard to say now well i don't like the fact that he's late yeah, in the sort of establishing your credentials for being on this podcast to talk about this, it was sadly the passing of Bert that triggered my sort of speaking to you and seeing if you wanted to come and talk about this film because I knew yeah. it was coming up. And I, I always want to talk about Bert. Yeah, so it's, it's good. But yeah, um, we had a, we had a chat about it, didn't we, when he died? So yeah, it was sad. So for men of our age, which is um, forty, etc. Yeah. Bert was pretty much, in this country at least, was pretty much a, a permanent fixture on TV and bank holidays, uh, Christmases, things like that. And, and adverts. Yeah, indeed. You did, did the British gas adverts, kids. Oh, yeah. Goodness me, I'd forgotten about that. It's good being in control. Hmm. Oh, well, good old Bert. Yeah. But, you know, he's, he's sort of much loved, I would say, really. And obviously he's got a, a very, you know, he had a very long career in the cinema. Mm. Of which, perhaps, this film does not loom large in his legend. No, this must have been fairly... Well, it is early on, isn't it? I mean, he didn't just come along at this point, but it's fairly early on. He's not as huge here as he would have been later. No, this is 1972, and it's just before yeah. Deliverance comes out. Yeah. Which is obviously the 
the film of that year for him that people remember. It's a very different affair to the to Fuzz. Yeah. And uh then he gets stuck into his his big run of of superstardom after that, I think, really. It's when he hooks up with Hal Needham and does all those spunt spunt? Stunts. <laughs> ah, combination of stunt and spunk. Um stunt orientated pictures that they did in the seventies. Yeah, because he I think he wanted to be a stuntman, didn't he, at some point. He started off as a stuntman. Yeah. And he does do some of his stunts in this film as well. Yeah. Oh, there's a great interview that I tweeted that I'll try and retweet when this comes out again. About he was on Johnny Carson talking about when he got his big break, he was a stuntman. Yeah. And one of the first things he did was a fire, you know, being on fire. Yeah. And falling down some stairs and things like that. So this is to him, this is just easy. Yeah. And this is the being on fire and falling downstairs scene that we'll exactly. get to at some point anyway. So mm. a couple of sort of preliminary things. Had you heard of Ed McBain or read any Ed McBain at all? I'd heard of him. I'd never read any of it. Okay, so, but you've probably got the idea. He's sort of, I won't use hard-boiled, that's not quite right, but he's a, he writes stories about police in New York, particularly. Mm. Didn't he also write pornography? Well, there's. it's rumoured that there's some novels under the name Dean Hudson, which were sort of pulp soft porn, oh. of which he may have written some. He wrote a lot of stuff under a lot of different pseudonyms, but that's, yeah. uh, that's debated. It's never been thoroughly um, agreed upon whether he did or not masturbated it's, it's that's um yeah it's a funny one really it's some people say yeah he definitely did but apparently his publishers just once the rumor was that he was doing these things his publisher just kept putting stuff out under that name whether it was him or not maybe he typed it with his other hand so it felt like someone else was writing it very nice yeah <laughs> that must be some effort to both masturbate and use a typewriter at the same time jeremy um what's his name did it for years that joke didn't go very well. <laughs> I've forgotten his name. You know, the man who went to prison. The man who went to prison. He no. wrote, for, for richer, for poorer. Oh, no, you've got me now. Oh, this is rubbish. Yeah, you've, now you've ruined he, it, haven't you? With that reference. What is his name? I'm going to look it up now, and that's going to annoy me. Okay. Well, while you're doing that, I'll sort of say, have you seen the film poster for this as well? Yes, it's unbelievable. It's zany, isn't it? It's zany. It's, they, they've taken the Playboy, Playgirl shoot yeah. Burt Reynolds did in the early 70s and used that as the poster. It's like one of those Ugandan Bond posters you see. Yeah, it's somewhere between that and like a carry-on film. Yeah. And they've also put Raquel Welsh front and centre in it, but for some reason dressed like she's in Barbarella. Yes, exactly, yeah. And so it bears no resemblance to the content of the film. At no point does Burt Reynolds lie nude on a rug. No, no, he doesn't in any point. In fact, the, the appropriate poster for this film would be him dressed as a nun. Yes. And that is the image most people will come away with once they've seen it anyway. Yeah, yeah. In terms of pre-film information people will want, this film is set in Boston for some reason. Well, I can tell you the reason. The reason was that the New York Film Department, it's supposed to be filmed in New York where the book was set, but there was mm. lots of strikes going on and the New York City organisation couldn't come to arrangements about this sort of thing. So right. production was moved to LA. Then clearly the same problems happened in LA and they ended up in Boston, which at least is sort of the right coast for the film anyway. Yeah. And it looks yeah. a bit like New York, but they're not trying to pass it off as New York. They are saying it's set in Boston. Yes. Not that the book is set in New York. The book is set in Isola, which is a fictionalised version of New York. 
That's why Mum went to Iceland to get caught up in the kidnap plots. Why? Whatever the fuck's going on in this film. I mean, there's about 15 plots. Only one of them gets resolved. Yes. And I mean, sometimes the books are a bit like that. They've got several threads and they come together very often. They come together, twist together into a sort of resolution. It works better in the books than it does in this film, I would say. There is a there is a, a, a good plot in this film about, you know, the Yule Brynner plot. Yeah. But you've got lots of other side plots going on. That yeah. I got really confused. There's a scene towards the end when there's a big shootout. Mm-hmm. In a in an off license, and I thought they were all on the same side initially. I thought, why the hell are they shooting each other? And only then I went back and watched it and realised, oh, they're two different sets of bad guys. Yeah, and I don't think that's made particularly clear. No, and it is coincidence brings them all together at the end, and you'd have to be watching very carefully to to track that, and yeah. you'd also have to be listening very carefully because everyone mumbles and talks over each other all the way through the film. I was going to talk about this because this is something Spielberg likes to do. He likes to have Six people around the table, all talking each- over each other. And he kind of all- always orchestrates it so you can hear what's going on. But in this, you've got no chance. No. There's about 15 people all mumbling over each other. And occasionally you're like, what? What was that? Yeah. That's all the way through the film. And I think the problem is that they were trying to capture the idea of a busy police department. And that sort of spilled out into, oh, everyone's talking. There's noise all the time. It's, that's the reality yeah. of, of, a, of the, the, the bullpen, the detective sort of area. And it may well have been, but it does not make for an easy watch or listen, rather. And those painters and decorators don't help either. No shrieking and laughing all the way through. Oh, God, I wanted to murder them. (laughs) With an ice pick. Yes. Shall we get stuck into some... Well, let's just do a quick pricey of the characters. Burt Reynolds plays Detective Steve Carella, the the main cop in the 87th Precinct. Mm-hmm. And he has, a, yeah, he doesn't have a massive role in this film. It's, he's uh, slightly inflated over actually what he has in the book, to be honest. Yeah, he he doesn't do much in this film. No, not very much. The only other really big name is Raquel Welsh, mm. who is brought in to play Eileen McHenry, who for some reason is a renamed character in the books called Eileen Burke. I don't know why. And the only other person I really knew about of this was Tom Skerritt, who plays Burt Kling who's Dallas from Alien. And he's beautiful in this, isn't he? He's uh, in his prime, Stunning. I would say. Yeah, like to comb his lovely hair. Oh, wouldn't you? He's, he's beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, even though he's a bit of a sex pest. <laughs> yes, he is. Very much a sex pest. Uh, he's beautiful. I liked his partner as well, the one who keeps beating up racists. He was good. Yes, so Arthur Brown is played by James McEachin, who, um, as far as I could tell, was in Every Which Way But Loose. Oh, was he and, Clint Eastwood? Yeah, maybe he was Clint Eastwood. Maybe he was, I don't yeah. know, a car or a gun or something. He I was haven't in, seen that film in a long time. No, he was in Sudden Impact as well, so he did clearly hang around with Clint Eastwood a bit. He was familiar. I'd seen him in something, but well, I, I liked him a lot. A lot of the cast are familiar because most of them, if you look for their credits, it's people who've been in TV series like Kojak and things like that. It's people mm. you will have seen in passing in Ironside or MacGyver or, or, or whatever. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing. It's not a massively, yeah, it's not a, an all-star cast. But did you know that the original director for this film was going to be Brian De Palma? I did read that, yes. And he, once they cast Yul Brynner as the deaf man and Raquel Welsh, he went, no, not for me, thank you very much. I wonder why. I mean, Yul Brynner doesn't do much in this film, so I don't understand why you'd have a big problem with it. Yeah, I think he his argument was that well, this is supposed to be a, a New York street cop movie and you're going to cast these 
foreigners in these roles. Um, mm, but it's not like he is in it a lot. No, no, not at all. It's an interesting little turn that Yul Brynner has. I suppose it's because he's got a foreign-sounding accent and he'd be quite easy to, to sort of find. But Yeah. But I thought he was all right. Yeah, he was. He, he, he brought a certain gravitas to the role. Of the, the, yes, a, a psychopathic sort of uh, glint in his eye. Hmm. But uh, apparently Bert and Raquel Welch didn't get on either. Yes, from a previous film. Apparently he didn't treat her very nicely on a film called A Hundred Guns. Yeah, they, they, had, they exchanged words apparently and mm. it, it lingered into this where they wouldn't be in scenes together and they wouldn't leave or arrive at the same time if there's a chance of bumping into each other. Yeah, and you, I think if they're only in actual... They're in one scene together, but Bert's like not involved with her at all. It's when she's being... Um, when she's taking the information from that crazy lady... Sadie the nut, yeah, she gets. Yeah, and they're all laughing at her. They're bullying her. Bullying in the workplace. It would you couldn't stand for it these days. Well, that's the just the tip of the iceberg. Because later on, she gets sexually assaulted in the workplace. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. So perhaps we should mm. uh, start exploring various threads from uh, from the off, and we mm. op- we open in uh, Boston, basically street scenes, and we see Raquel Welsh arriving at the eighty seventh precinct where she is. Yeah brought in for well to act as a decoy in a rape case basically is yeah. her main role in this so that's one of the threads of the stories what do you think of raquel welsh i thought she was good in this but again i don't think i don't she doesn't really get a lot to do no and they don't she, really play she, up to her sexiness do they a, a sort of sex appeal the, the reason you cast raquel welsh was generally because of the sex appeal but yes, this is a but pg I, and i did read that they wanted to have her do more sexy things, but she refused quite rightly. Yeah, wanted exactly. to have her half naked in the bit where you see her in her bra. Yeah, it's it's actually very underplayed in terms of her. She she plays the character well. It's not it's not overblown really. No. But we, yeah, we get up into the into the police station and it's chaos. And there's these painters. Oh. <laughs> so they dominate. So they're another thread. They're another story thread. Yeah, and it's just this constant thing going on of them just endlessly talking to each other in very loud voices and dripping paint over everything. I know, I just, it made me, it gave me the irrits, as it were, as I thought about what it would be like mm. in your actual workplace if that was happening, let alone yeah. a place where you're, the, you're a policeman or a woman yeah. trying, to, <laughs> trying to go about your, your daily detecting business. I think you're supposed to say police officer. A police officer, yeah. Well, it was 1970s yeah. New York. It was still a, str- a strange time for getting women into, particularly into detectives, sort of divisions but i think you'll find it was boston well yeah you're, you're right you're right <laughs> i'm caught up in the reality of the books you see that's as many of the people who'll be listening to this are probably more people will listen to this and would actually ever watch the film i would have thought oh i'd imagine so i did find it for free on youtube though which was nice oh well there's there's your clue everyone you can go and hunt it out yeah i mean you sent it to me yeah I- illegally i might add never what so you're going to prison um, and I had it on my laptop and suddenly thought, you know what, I, I bet it's on YouTube, and it was. So well, everybody out there, it's on YouTube. Yeah, indeed. Well, there's not really a very good DVD release of it anyway, so I found surprised. it finally. So I got it in a, a double DVD pack with another Burt Reynolds film called Seamus. I've not heard of that one. It's He plays a private eye in New York this time, and he's ah. it's, it's much more of a Burt film, but it's basically a proper private eye story of the type you'd get in the 1940s, like a Raymond Chandler one just set in the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's that's worth a watch, you know. Hmm. 
But we're in this office. Uh, Detective Maya Maya is getting frustrated with all these painters dripping paint everywhere and talking about coming from maintenance and repair. Yeah. And phone calls start getting received. Yes. Did you grasp, really, what the deaf man's plan was? So these phone calls come from Yul Brynner, the deaf man, threatening to yeah. kill people. Yeah, it's a bit Die Hard with a Vengeance, isn't it? It's a bit, um, uh, if you don't give me this money, I'm going to assassinate this political um, uh, this political figure. Wasn't it head of some department? I can't remember which one. First person that is uh, threatened and then killed is Parks Commissioner Cooper. There you go. Five thousand dollars is the is the price he, char- he charges, like he's sent That's them a right. bill. Mm. But yeah, so and they set up a sting to try and catch the person collecting the loot. Yeah, which is not a very good sting, to be honest. I mean, no. Tom Skerritt, Tom Skerritt, and his partner uh, are, are, are moaning that they have to get there at five in the morning. Yeah, which is which is fine, and they say to them, you know, the reason you're there at five in the morning is because you're going to be there before anybody else. But what doesn't help is that they're in this little bit where uh, in the park. There's like a little, uh, what did I sort of a, a gully or recess? A, a, a gully or recess. Thank you. But their heads are poking up over it, and they're holding walkie-talkies to their face. And it's like, well, they're clearly policemen. Yes. And you'd see. I mean, this guy's deaf. He's not blind, <laughs> and uh, he'd definitely see them. So I just think it's terrible policing. Yeah, it's. And I th- well, that's sort of the theme of the film is that the police are supposed to be seen as inept and bumbling, and they really play up to that in 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 the film version particularly. I feel like this film has a problem with tone, you know, because on the one hand, you could say it's a bit of a comedy caper, yeah, but on the other hand, it wants to take itself very seriously, yeah, with m- moments of extreme violence or uh, extreme sort of verbal assault, yeah. But the next scene, you've got Burt Reynolds dressed as a nun. You know, you're just like, well, which direction are we going in here? Yeah, and this is something that the book does much more successfully because it plays up to the the reality of the police work, which explains why they get in the situations. This, it just seems a bit like, what? What's mm. what's going on? But before we see Bert as the nun, we see him as a, a vagrant. Mm. So he's all dressed up as a bum to go out in the streets because kids well, are setting like- people on fire. Yeah, he looks like Huckleberry Finn's pimp. <laughs> he's got this sideways hat on, and uh, and it's obviously got the moustache anyway. But yeah, these kids are set. They're they're going out into the streets of Boston, and they're setting fire to homeless people. Yeah, and so and I read that this led to loads of copycat cases in real life. It wasn't loads, but it certainly was a couple of high-profile incidents, and and one twenty-four-year-old uh, woman did lose her life. And it was mm. it was blamed on a TV showing of Fuzz saying that they this had inspired them to to go out and do this, but yeah. but I mean this was a Boston that was a bit of a city on the edge at the time with a lot of violent crime going on. So there was this was just one horrible thing amongst many horrible things. So whether you can blame this or not, I don't know. But they did try mm. and do you know it was very much a sort of Mary Whitehouse moment of how can we have all this violence on TV type thing. Mm. So that's a horrible real-life story attached to this, which might explain why the sequel never got made. Well, yeah. one of the reasons. Well, Hot Fuzz, that got made, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, imagine that was a sequel. Yeah. I'm, sure I could, I'm sure I could find a thread that would make it into a sequel. I could do it. You could digitally uh, insert a swan in this, just occasionally wandering about. Yeah, this, that could be the same swan that turns up in Hot Fuzz. Mm. I'd rather insert uh, a digital Burt Reynolds into Hot Fuzz. Or a digital Timothy Dalton than this. 
Yeah. Bert, catch me. I'm a slasher. <laughs> of prices. This, yeah, of the two fuzz named films, there's Hot Fuzz and Fuzz. I think that's it for films with the word fuzz in the title. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, anyway. Hmm. But yeah, so Bert, Bert as Steve Crowley does get set on fire. That's the the big stunt scene. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty dramatic. You know, he has to throw yeah, himself into pretty... a puddle to put himself out. Yeah, you can tell that he's obviously fine with it because, as I say, he's been a stunt man, so it's probably not a big deal to him. But he has to overdub. There's lots of ADR on this, which is terrible. Oh by yeah, way. yeah. It's bad. But he has to overdub himself, kind of going, oh, oh. But his face is not doing that at all. His face is having that. His face has got that very concentrated, I am a stuntman, this is fine, look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right about the ADR. I did make a note about that. There's certain scenes where it goes from being impossible to hear because everyone's talking to they've to an ADR, an overdub thing, and it's mm. suddenly it's, it's, it's really clear and not very well synced up at all. No. There's a bit later on where someone's being interrogated, and out of nowhere their voice raises in volume and he says, go stick it in your hat. Well, you'd want to get that line across, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think that 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 is a case. There's another one earlier on which I forgot to write down where they've clearly done a swear, and <laughs> they probably had to get rid of it to get it past the censors or something. Yeah, to get the PG rating. Yeah, so they've changed to go stick it in your hat. Yeah, so we keep cutting back to the police station because that's obviously where you know all the cop characters are, and and after this has all started. Uh, Steve Carella, Burt Reynolds, has gone to hospital at one point. We yeah. meet his wife, Teddy. And this is another thread where I thought, ah, this is going to come into play later because this is clever because the baddie's deaf and he's, his partner's deaf as well. Yeah. So there's going to be some sort of sign language thing later on. No. No, and I don't think that actually ever happens in this. So the deaf man appears in six, I think, novels in the 87th Precinct. He's like the recurring baddie over, you know, six within 55 books. He comes ah, back. so he's like the Moriarty. He is very much the Moriarty. That's usually how he's yeah. described. So he's been, in the book series, he's been in one before this. This is his return. Obviously on screen, this is his first appearance. Yeah. And I can't think there's a point where Corella's knowledge of sign language actually helps them out at any point. Well, I thought that was what they were doing here. I thought they were saying the only reason to have his wife as a mute deaf lady is they do this and there's a book called Messiah by Boris Starling. Mm. And they made it for TV about 15 years ago or so. And um, there was the, the plot device in that that he was his wife was deaf and a signer. And that came into play later in the book. And it was a very clever device. And I was thinking, ah, oh, they're doing this as well. They're, they're, they're going to have it that later on the deaf man who actually it turns out isn't really deaf. He's just got a hearing aid. Um, was going to have some sort of plot device. I was thinking, oh, there's going to be something at the end where he gets to read his sign language or something. No. No. Absolutely not at all. all. Well, I think, I mean, the character of Teddy Carella's in the books right from the start, as she's obviously a deaf mute before the deaf man comes along at all anyway. And I think Mm. McBain's theory was just basically to use it as sort of moral leverage with with Steve Carella in that Teddy is the hero's wife and she's good and the deaf man is is the evil side of, of that. Um, but it doesn't really come across in the film. He doesn't think about it. No. He it's, says that. I, I, I don't ever think about it. But don't you think that Bert in the hospital with Teddy Kriller is, it's the cutest Bert you'll ever see in your life? Yeah, it's a lovely moment. It's very sweet and it's, it's just yeah. a nice little scene. Although he's straight back to work, having been set on fire one, one day, he's straight back mm. to work the next. Well, he's got to rin that cannonball. Yeah. And yeah, so Dom, Dom DeLuise should have been in this as his partner. Would have been amazing. 
what's amazing about this is there's in the books there's a cop called Andy Parker who does feature in this film. He's the guy with the dog in the park and and talks to oh, Michael yeah. Wells. But in the books he's yeah. a real big fat slob, and right. and he's the he's a good bad character if you see what I mean. You know, a proper and Dom DeLuise would have been good for that. Mm. They should have stuck to the traditional uh, Andy Parker and done that. But the guy with the dog is very funny in the park bit where he has to the dog won't do what he's selling him. That's quite a funny bit. Yeah, as the plot progresses, we basically have a repetition of the first thing, which is someone else is threatened and they have to do another drop. And you get to this mm. big set piece in the park. Mm. And that's the that's the sort of the pinnacle of the farce in the film, isn't it? Yeah, although they do get a lead out of that, don't they? Because they do follow the guy who picks up the pail and the pail hasn't got the money in it. It's got a block of wood. Yeah, so that's... And they they yeah. follow him to Sam's pool club. Yeah, so that's from the first drop, and they go to this pool parlour that becomes important yes. within the thing, and they send Detective Maya. Maya goes along later to go undercover as mm. a bad pool player. Mm. Bad undercover job, though, I think. Oh, yeah? Well, because he's playing pool with this guy, and then the guy they're tailing walks in, talks yep. for a second, then leaves, and then he goes, oh, I've got to go, I'm in trouble with my wife. Yes, it's it's not a very subtle departure, is it? No, it's not at all. Oh, I wanted to point out as well two things that struck me immediately about this film from the opening credits. Go on. The music in the music in this is excellent. Yes, it's not it's not bad, is it? And it's by Dave Grusin, who did the music for the Goonies. Oh, he did the Goonies. Yes. I did, what did I have written down as, as stuff that he'd done? He's done all sorts, but people might not know he did the Goonies as well. Oh yeah, he did Tootsie. And there you go. He did The Firm and, and a few other ones. There's not masses of people in the crew even who've got sort of very famous credits other than, uh, say, the costume designer. And the costumes aren't bad in this either, really, when you, th- no. you sort of don't notice them, but they're, they're, they suit what it is. But she was the costume designer on things like South Pacific and The Sound of Music and Young Frankenstein. Wow. So that's a heck of a, uh, a pedigree. I also wanted to point out that there's an actor called Peter Boners. <laughs> yes, he's... Oh, well, he's brilliant. He's he's a classic McBain comedy character who comes into the, um, I think, if this is who I'm thinking of, is the old fella who comes in and is complaining about having his car filled with garbage every morning. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's him, but I like the name Peter Boners. It's, yeah, it's a good name and you'd wear it with pride. You would. You'd be very proud of your boners. <laughs> So, right, where are we up to? They follow, yeah, they've been following Anthony Lebraska, who they think is in with a deaf man, and the mm. kids bring in another threatening letter. They go to the park again, although they are, at some point, Arthur Brown is put on a wiretap to listen to phone calls. And that's where he beats up a racist. Yes, which is a good sort of air punch moment for, like, because in, in you know, a film made in that situation, in that time period, that could have just been a passing racist comment but they actually get the black cop to, to, to beat the shit out of this this telephone wiretap installation guy who decides to call him the N-word. I think it's very badly directed, though, honestly, because yeah. that isn't as satisfying a moment as it could have been because he follows him off screen. Yeah. And then you hear like a thud and then he comes back. It would be much better if he'd have done it there and then rather than following off screen. Yes, it's uh, perhaps, again, preserving the PG certificate somewhat. Yeah, Although, so. of course, they use the N-word a couple of times. They do. But, yeah, like we say, he punches the guy. Yeah. Um, so uh, when they fo- tap the phone, this is when they lay... After that is when they put the next pail down. Yeah. 
and this is where you get Bert as a nun. <laughs> so he's constantly having to hide his moustache, which makes no sense. Yeah. Um, and the, Tom Skerritt, who's at this point, has asked Raquel Welsh out for a coffee, and she said yes. So immediately that means they're 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 in love. Yeah. And they're disguised in the park. So we've got the man we talked about earlier who's a, pretending to be a blind man with a dog. Yes. You've got Bert and his mate pretending to be nuns. And Tom Skerritt and Raquel Welsh's disguise is to get inside a sleeping bag <laughs> and lie on the grass, mic'd up and hearing Tom Skerritt sexually assaulting her. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange thing because the, the weather, which is well, the weather plays a big part in McBain books. And this book is one of the, the cold books. This is supposed to be freezing cold, depths of winter. And they're in a park in a sleeping bag. Yeah. Getting it on, basically. They are getting it on. It's, it's you know, it's, as they as they would say in um, films of this era, he's really turning her on. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, he's a, a handsome young chap, but uh, I'm not oh, sure it's... Not sure it's standard police practice. No, I think if it was nowadays, it would be frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. But of course, they not only are they doing a rather bizarre surveillance where they face each other and kiss each other in a sleeping bag rather than looking out for what they're looking out for, they get yeah. stuck in it as well. Exactly, so it's completely impractical. Everything goes to, coin a phrase, tits up in that observation, doesn't it? So yeah. they, get, they get stuck in the sleeping bag. Andy Parker with the dog manages to well the dog doesn't react when he tries to set him on the guy picking up the money and mm. then he shoots himself in the foot yeah and a real comedy of errors and bert and uh and maya maya steve carella and maya maya are just dressed as nuns and don't manage to catch him but they no finally raquel welsh gets him in the end she does because she's the only one who's mildly competent and there's yeah and again we get more sort of interrogation scenes and that sort of stuff yeah well they do a good cop bad cop routine don't they um but and um maya maya uh but it doesn't go very well because the guy they think they're getting the guy on their side and then the end is when he tells he tells bert's partner to go and stick it in your hat and poor old maya maya is just not winning favor with the lieutenant is he no he's not uh but raquel welsh has got a b plot here where there's some sort of rapist wandering around yeah, so she has to go, and that's a that's a new plot for the film that's borrowed from a different book and in sort of inserted in to give her something to do. Yeah, but it doesn't pay off because, as far as I can work out, and please beg my pardon if I have missed what's happened here. But as mm-hmm. far as I could make out, and I was very tired when I was watching this last night, to put my excuse in early, <laughs> she is confronted by a sex attacker in the park. Mm-hmm. She draws her gun on him. Yeah, and then we don't ever see her again. No, that's more or less it, really. Her job's done. That's just weird. Because you yeah, don't she... even see the guy getting arrested or processed. No, she has a nice sort of quip about um, cutting his career short if she shoots him in the balls, basically. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, that's sort of her job done. And you never see her again. Which was probably to uh, Burt Reynolds' relief. Yeah, Phil, it's a bit pointless having her in the film, really, apart from her main contribution is... So we see her in her bra, she gets sexually assaulted, and then she nearly gets raped, and that's it. Yeah, it's perhaps not the greatest representation of women in the police. No, this was 1972. Yeah, but to be honest, there's not many films or TV series where there is brilliant representation of women in the police, even to this day. Charlie's Angels? Yeah, but yeah, by the book, of course, that. (laughs) (laughs) 
I meant Juliet Bravo, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah. bill, the bill in general, you know, that tackles yeah. those issues properly. Yeah, you've got June in there, haven't you? He's yep. all right. Yeah. So where are we at now? Basically, they're tailing someone, they, the, the guy from the first pickup, and they have to, they're overhearing him in a, like a dirty magazine shop. I don't know what to call it. It's a peep show. Peep show thing, yeah. Sort of yeah. X rated bookshop with a peep show they're machine all, at the back. They're all watching dirty movies through a little slit that you have to put a quarter in to make the slit open. Yes. And uh, this causes a hilarious moment where everybody, including the baddies and goodies, are becoming distracted by tits. Yeah, although you don't actually see any on screen. It is mainly. You see, di- a, you see a bit of a boob. A little bit of side boob and a bit of thigh. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, ev- literally everyone is just completely distracted by by this. That joke is played three times. This is 1972. It's like super hardcore porn for that time. Yeah, whereas now it's like an advertising hoarding. You know, you what's could put the, it on CBBS? What What's the world coming to, John? Yeah, I don't that's know. The, that's it's... the question I'm asking. I don't know. Will our children ever forgive us? <laughs> Not if we show them this. Yeah, they will because when they're a teenager, they'll have access to the, all the world's pornography. I haven't got kids, so I don't have to worry about that. I think it's you've got to make oh. sure your parental locks are all right, haven't you? Yeah, mine are all right. <laughs> but once we've been hist- hilariously distracted by soft porn, um, the deputy mayor gets blown up in his car, mm-hmm. which is quite a good little sequence. Well, not good for the and, deputy mayor. Or his wife, or their staff, who are all in the car as well. Or the car that crashes into them. Oh, yeah, they get killed as well, because that explodes. Because in those days, cars used to, when they had mild collisions or minor collisions they used to explode yeah it was a design flaw yeah you know it kept things like james bond films interesting plenty of exploding yeah. cars in them the best example of this uh, even though it's latter day period of it but the film american ninja oh right there's a bit at the end where the uh, general from a re- the baddie general is uh, in a jeep that crashes into a tree obviously because they didn't have much budget it's literally just sort of bumps into the tree and then violently explodes. It's very funny. Oh, that's a, a Canon film, isn't it? Canon Globus yeah. film. <laughs> it is. Yes. All the budget went on Michael Dudikoff. They were masters of those sorts of uh, spectacular moments on a shoestring. Yes, they were very important. Witness Superman 4. They'd have done a great job with Fuzz. Yeah, it does feel like it could have come out of their stable. Perhaps if it had been made yeah. 10 years later, it, it, it would have been... But well, I they'd, think... have shot it, they'd have shot it in Hackney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then they've got Michael Winner to direct. Oh, goodness me. It's just, it just gives me pains just thinking about that. They'd have probably still got Bert because he did, was doing anything in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, can you imagine? Oh, yes. Well, I, yeah, I can imagine very easily. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we've had an exploding car. Yeah. And else, elsewhere, else, yes, that's the right word, <laughs> elsewhere, yeah. Kling and Meyer pick up someone who they think is a girl in a car, mm. big long blonde hair, it turns out to yeah. be a boy. Can you imagine? A boy in a band. Yeah. And did you catch the name of the band he's in? The Something Onions. The Rotten Onions. The Rotten Onions, yeah. Which is, I don't know if that's an improvement over the name of the band he's in in the book, because in the book he's in a band called The Coaxial Cable. See, that's better. Rotten Onions is like it feels like it's a fifty-year-old man who doesn't understand anything. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, Evan Hunter, Ed McBain did write the script for this, and uh. and he is a you know he 
how old would he been? He was, well, he was born in 1926 and he was a music lover, but I suspect he felt a bit isolated by the stuff that was going on in the popular music scene by the early 70s. Mm. And so you end up with the coaxial cable and then you end up with the rotten onions. Well, imagine for a moment they're supporting Black Sabbath or something. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, the rotten onions. <laughs> and it sounds like a, ch- a children's punk band. It does, yeah. But as I said on the podcast where we were talking about the book of this, Hmm. there are lots of really bad band names out there in the real world and very often people have been in quite a few of them. I haven't been in a band with a particularly stupid name, but I was in a band called Hillary and the Democrats. See, that's quite a good band name, I think. Well, it it was. It it suited us at the time, but sometimes when you say it to people, you get a look like, hmm. I used to know a friend who had the... He told me his band name. I mean, I don't think they're together anymore. In fact, I know they are. But I thought it was the best band name I've ever heard. Yeah. It was named. It was called A Risky Six. A Risky Six. Yeah, and it was taken from Countdown. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, well, they, that's, is that a cricketing term? But no. No, it's, it's Countdown when you know they say, "Oh, I've got a risky six. Yeah. Well, that's such a good name for a band. It is because it's also one of those ones where it could it means something and nothing as well. Yeah. 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 So if you're listening, Sam, you should get that back, back together. Probably isn't listening. Well, you know. He was an arsehole. <laughs> well, there you go. You've lost your invite to the VIP section of the Risky Six reunion show. Good. <laughs> right, we move on from the Rotten Onions then. and mm. One hour and four minutes into this film, which is only 99 <laughs> minutes long, we meet Yul yes. Brynner. Yes, it's a very, it, it doesn't feel like a very long film at all. And when he did come up into this, I thought, oh, okay, so they're introducing him fairly early. And as you say, he isn't in it very much, so... It's it is a strange bit of casting. He's quite like you know he's he's an interesting screen presence. Yul Brynner, obviously things like Westworld, he's perfect for. Hmm. And then he turns up here, and the, de- the deaf man is supposed to be a suave sociopath, which hmm. he he sort of gets that sort of comes across a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. But yeah, I, I can probably I, if you put it that way. I mean, obviously, I didn't know what he was like in the book. But if you put it that way, then he probably isn't the greatest piece of casting ever, really. No. Yeah. They should have had someone like, um, oh God, I'm terrible with names today. What's his name? Uh, Kenneth Williams. No, 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 that would have been great. Uh, let me just look up his name. John Vernon. They should have had someone like John Vernon. John Vernon, remind me. He is the dean in Animal House. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and he's in Point Blank as well, I believe. Yeah. But he, he's very kind of um, authoritative but also quite suave. Yeah, someone who could com- you'd feel was commanding the people around him and people would sort of fall into his thrall. Exactly. And he also did the voice of one of the villains in the Batman cartoon, the um, Rupert, someone or other. But he had a great voice. Neil Brynner has got a good voice as well, but the, the, the fact that he is... What was he? he was he was he Swedish or Belgian? or I mean, Israeli, wasn't he? Um, I was going to say Hungarian, but I've no idea. Oh, I can't remember either, but... He's got such a distinctive voice that if you were to carry out some sort of telephone um, terrorism, it would be fairly easy to... Oh, he was Russian. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. It would be fairly easy to find that person in Boston, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. Deaf guy with a Russian accent. Oh, yeah, that's him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suspect the informants would uh, would know straight away who you were talking about. Yeah. But I, I think he's sort of being cast because... 
not because it serves the character, but because they wanted another big name in there. And he was oh, he absolutely. Was, he was probably a bigger name than Bert. I would have thought at the time, but he's not got lead. Most billing. definitely. No, definitely. I mean, the same reason probably why he's in Westworld. I mean, on the face of it, who do you want to play a psychotic cowboy? Yul Brynner, a Russian bloke with a bald head. Fame, famed for playing the King of Siam. Exactly. Not really the first name that jumps to mind, but he was a big name. I mean, this is after the Magnificent Seven, wasn't it? So, yeah. Um, and they, as you say, the King and I. So I'd imagine this is just another box office thing. I think he's fine. I understand, I mean, as I say, I understand the issues. And he doesn't get a lot to do. So whoever it was didn't have a lot of work on their hands. No, indeed. But he did have to sit and listen to the, the girl who's in the apartment with him playing heart and soul on the piano over and over again badly. Oh, God, yeah. That was like that bit in Big, but for our souls. <laughs> yeah. Again, they don't really sell the fact that he's supposed to be irresistible to women and he always has someone in his crew who's totally doe-eyed and in love with him and they just give this poor lass the job of misplaying heart and soul on the piano and then going away again. Exactly, yeah. So where do we go We're on from here? Well, yeah, then we get to the bit where Raquel Welsh does her rape villain catching and then vanishes. Yeah, yeah, completely vanishes, yep. And then we get into this sort of big end bit, which is the deaf man going to carry out his plan to yes. kill to kill the mayor in order that he can then threaten someone else and get some money from them. Yeah. It's nicely sociopathic because he quite likes just killing people in order to make money. He's not bothered. He doesn't care. If people paid, he'd still kill them anyway. No. It all sorts of sort of falls apart a little bit because he wants some champagne on the way home. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, he's an idiot. I mean, I've been listening to lots of podcasts about the Zodiac Killer lately. Yeah. keep thinking that would have fallen apart pretty quick if he'd have stopped for champagne on the way home, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, we've all done stupid things when we thought we'd just stop for a quick drink on the way home. You know, it normally turns out that you miss your tea and then you get all ratty and you're sort of tired at work the next day. And that's the very least of it. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is where you have to sort of have had your concentrating head on to try and work out how these threads all come together. Because not only have we got the firebugs knocking about, we've also got the guy from the very first pickup that they've been tailing who it turns out isn't involved at all but is going to be holding up this liquor store that the deaf man decides to go into to buy some champagne yes and at the same time bert and tom skerritt are in there doing their stakeout uh, but what are they staking out this is a bit i'm unclear of they're staking out the guys who are going to hold up the liquor store how did they find out guys holding up the liquor store i'm sorry i probably missed all this because the guy from Rotten Onions tells them to save himself getting involved. Uh, yes, they hear it at the peep show, don't they? Yeah, they, they, they know that something's going on. They pick up this guy that the other guys contact, and then they find out from that way. And they What they thought was going to lead them to the deaf man doesn't. They get stuck on this stupid thing where they're protecting someone whose liquor store has $86 in the till. Yeah. And But yeah, coincidence means that they turn up at the same time as the deaf man, and then it's sort of... All hell breaks loose. Yeah, it is. It's a massive shootout with Bert and uh, his friend literally cowering under the counter. And several people left dead. Someone's not sure if someone else is a policeman because they're dressed up in a, a uniform to try and con their way into something. They also put a bomb under a bum. They also put a bomb under the mayor's bed. Is that the LOLO version of this? Yeah, the bin. You left There's a bum under the mayor's bed. Um, they put a bomb. <laughs> 
<laughs> they put a bomb under the mayor's bed. They they get in there pretending to be electricians. There's a lot of trust in this film. It's like when they put the bomb in the mayor's car. This guy just turns up dressed as a mechanic and goes, ah, oh, I've come to look at the mayor's car. And the policeman goes, ah, oh, this has already been looked at. And he goes, yeah, but I need to look at the clock. Okay. Yeah, fine. And then this one, they're like, oh, we've come to, to sort out the power. Have you got any kind of ID? Nope. Okay, in you come. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they put a bomb under the bed, and uh, this is part of the threat they have to stop. And they, as you say, there's a big shootout. The guy dressed as a policeman who gets them, in, gets them into the mayor's house is killed. Mm-hmm. And then Yul Brynner, he gets a he gets shot as well, doesn't he? But he manages to make a break for it. Yeah, so he escapes with uh, Burt Reynolds giving chase. Yeah, the car, a guy, the other one of Yule's men gets in a car that drives off, but gets shot by, uh, what's his name? Woogie Woogie. Maya Maya. Maya Maya, thank you. Um, so that's, he's taken out, and Bert chases Yule Brinner. Now, we also, what we cut to here is the kids that set fire to Bert earlier, they're wandering the streets a bit bored. Yeah. One of them's played by the accountant from The Untouchables. Indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah when he's a young man. And they've decided, ah, oh, well, we'll just we'll just go and drink at the dock. Now, unbeknownst to them, heading their way is Yule, an injured Yule Brinner. Yes. Who gets to the dock with Bert in pursuit, and he sort of falls over at the dock because he's hurt. Now the kids think he's homeless. Yeah, and therefore a target. A target. So they set fire to him, and Bert's like, no, and Yule Brinner jumps in the water. Yeah. Presumed dead. So luckily, it was by the docks. Yeah, exactly. Lucky it wasn't by a petrol station. <laughs> no, you can't jump into a petrol station when you're on fire. That's that's A1 no-no. No, it's suicide. Um, but So Bert smacks around the kids a bit. He's annoyed at them anyway because A, they set him on fire. Yes. And B, they've now lost their number one suspect. And so they bring in all the uh, equipment to clean up the, the scene and they we mm. sort of cut to a little bit later while they're chatting about, well, we solved the case anyway. And we're almost at the end of the film there because we've got little left then except for the obligatory cut to the water in the dock and the hearing aid floating on the surface. Well, you get that bit from Batman where the little hand comes out of the water. Yeah. Which has always bothered me because that means he's drowning. Yeah. It's It's like in Batman. It's like the Joker's hand comes out, but surely his head would come out first. You'd think so. Yeah. And the same thing happens. And then it kind of... Almost does like the end of Flash Gordon. It basically says the end, question mark, sort of. And you hear Yul Brynner go, no, that doesn't happen, sorry. (laughs) Should have done. Yeah. Well, they had planned to make a sequel. Oh, really? Yeah, called Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man, which was another one of the books from a little later on. Yeah. But obviously that did not happen. Probably, I expect, because of the twin factors of box office return Mm. and... um, the fact that people in Boston were actually setting people on fire off the back of this film, or so it seemed. Yeah. They should have made a sequel where everybody was putting water on people. Yeah, or that, giving, that would, giving people soup. Yeah, it would have cancelled it out, because if you'd have found someone on fire, you could have put water on them or soup, Yeah, and it would have put the fire out. Well, soup has is a dual threat, you see. You can both put out fires with it and nourish a vagrant. And scold. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. No, gazpacho. No, that's true. That's true. So we've reached, more or less, the end of the film, save for Dina Shaw singing I'll Be Seeing You in all the old familiar places. Yes. Should you want another sort of heavy-handed suggestion that there's going to be a sequel? Yeah, there's not. No. No. We really need to 
come up with some sort of rating for this film. So I alerted you to the fact that for every everything that we do, we, we come up with a, a rating unit to give the film. Mm. And basically, we need to determine something. So what are the units we're going to use out of 100 to rate this film? Well, my initial thought was, I said to you, was people talking over each other. Mm. But I've, I've since thought an, annoying painters. Annoying painters. So the yeah. amount of annoying, annoying painters out of 100 that this film is. Yes. So I leave it to you then to declare what your rating is for it. I would give this film uh, 28 annoying painters out of 100. 28. I mean, that's still Mm. a lot of annoying painters. It is, and you do feel it in this, the annoying painters. There's quite a nice payoff with that, though, isn't there, that we haven't talked about? No, go on. And at least that's Arthur Brown, the detective who was on the wiretap before, Mm. as they're leaving and they're still pissing themselves laughing at everything. Yeah. He spots them having nicked a load of stuff and it's in their van. So they get their comeuppance. They stole typewriters. They did. And then the other one starts laughing at the one that was caught. It's like they've never learned their lesson. Shut your mouths. Well, the thing, the worst thing about them is they remind me of, and I used to be a teacher for a while and I taught teenagers Mm. and you'd get the teenagers who would just laugh at everything. And you always felt like they're laughing at me just for the sake of it. Or they're laughing at, it's just like, why are you laughing? Just not everything's funny. The weather. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah they reminded me of that so you've given this film 28 of them out of 100 i what would you give it well i'd give it a little higher i've watched it a couple of times and i preferred it the second time mm. i can i can but then i'm a massive 87th precinct fan and it's just nice to have any sort of version of it on the screen i know what you mean yeah. but i would not go above 40 of those mm. so with my powerful maths. I'm just uh, firing up Kenneth's calculation system here. I like Kenneth. Can you remind the listeners what Kenneth stands for? Because I like this acronym a lot. Kenneth stands for computes every number nearly every time, honestly. <laughs> and here's our, here's our supercomputer that is the only way we'd keep track of the scores for these things. Are you going to put like a chock-a-block type sound effect behind it as you're firing up Kenneth? Do you know what? We normally leave Kenneth unmiked but maybe i'll maybe i'll do that maybe we need to hear something of the workings of kenneth complex machine is he more of a silent runner he's he's very much he's the does a lot of silent running Mm, good for him but he has he's he's spun and word and clicked and he's produced the fact that this film therefore gets a rating between the two of us of 34 annoying painters out of 100 Mm. so this is probably one of the least well rated so far of the spin-offs and side pods we've done I would say, though, can you imagine how how lower down our ratings would have been had Burt Reynolds not been in it at all? Yeah, I mean, you take that moustache out of the picture and you instantly drop five points each at least, I'd say. I was, I was thinking that because obviously Deliverance was next and he did take the moustache out of the equation, didn't he? Oh, yeah. So, just goes to show. He, he looked weird. I, I think I, I tweeted it once. It's like, Burt Reynolds must have looked in the mirror one morning when he, when he had a moustache and just gone, yeah, that's it. I just, yeah, the fact that he, he gets, goes undercover as a nun and has to constantly disguise his moustache is See, a Again, is that's a funny. Yeah, that's funny. But then there's this subplot about rapists. You're like, yeah. where are we going, lads? Yeah, well, I think in summing up, I don't want to put you on the spot, John, but I've, I've mm. got a couple of quick questions. Oh, go on. Yeah. Very quick fire questions, these ones, quite simply. Yeah. Number one, do you prefer goodies or baddies? Oh. Well, my natural reaction is always to say goodies because uh, I love the goodies. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. That's a fair response. Hmm. So, yeah, although sometimes the baddies in films are more interesting than the goodies, 
apart from Marvel films, obviously. But of course, you as a as a James Bond head, mm. he's a sort of is he a, a bad goodie or a good baddie? He, he sort of sometimes Ooh. flits between the two, doesn't he? Depending on the uh, the prevailing mood of the film. Yes, he does a bit. Um, it depends who the Bond is. There are yeah. moments where Bond is very good, and there are moments when he's not very nice. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, he's probably if you were to run him through Kenneth. Yeah. He'd, he'd probably come out at like forty-eight to fifty-two percent, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. Oh, we don't like those numbers. No, no one does. No one wants those numbers hanging around like a bad stink for years, affecting everything you do and your future. No. Right, one more question then. Mm. McBain himself was the master of single word story titles with things such as fuzz and ice and heat and axe and widows and things like that. So give me your best single word book title you've just come up with. For an Ed McBain novel? For anything. Oh, for anything. Okay. Um, Fist. Fist, okay. Is it with an exclamation mark or without an exclamation mark? It's with two exclamation marks. Wowzers. Yeah. And it's it's about a cop who is better with his fists than his guns. Oh, yeah. And his name is um, Peter Fisticuff. 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 Yeah. Everyone calls him Fist. Is the character perhaps of Russian extraction or something like that? Polish, maybe? Yeah. Russia is Polish extraction, yeah, but he's 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 from the Bronx, yeah, and he he works in the fifty seventh precinct, and he specialises in killing painters who talk a lot. Well, when they get round to to painting his office, we look forward to reading all about the uh, grotesque mayhem he causes with yeah. his fists. Good, that's good. That's, that's a, a good title. That fist. Thanks. Two exclamation marks. Possibly the sign of a psychopath, but we don't know. <laughs> Well, when people are pushed, they you know they can go all sorts of places. <laughs> well, John, thank you very much for joining me for this. I appreciate it for your lending your filmic thoughts on the matter of fuzz. It was an honour and a privilege. I couldn't think of anyone else I'd like to share Bert time with. No, me neither. Thank you again, and everybody, go and listen to John's new podcast, which is called All Rather Mysterious, starting on the twenty seventh of February. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye.